Hey folks, in today's episode, we go on location to the Gettysburg battlefield to talk about distributed decision-making and how you can make better decisions in your organization by letting your frontline leaders think for themselves. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and business agility coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hey folks, I'm here at Gettysburg. I'm standing in front of Little Round Top. And the reason I wanted to, to shoot a short video here is because we talk a lot about the power of distributed decision-making, about mission tactics, mission command, off-tracks tactics, and the value of enabling your frontline leaders to think for themselves and to make decisions for themselves. There is no better example of how powerful that can be, how transformative that can be, than what happened here on July 3rd, 1863, when Colonel Joshua Chamberlain of the 20th Maine Volunteers was told to hold the left flank of the Union lines on top of this little hill. And he did hold it for one charge, for two charges as the Confederates tried to turn the Union flanks and take this hill. But by the time they, they got ready to make their third charge up this hill, they were out of ammunition and he knew that he couldn't repulse another attack. But his orders said, you stay where you are, you stay on top of this hill, don't move under any circumstances. But Joshua Chamberlain was not a military man. He was not a career officer. He taught classics and rhetoric at a small liberal arts college before the war. He knew critical thinking. He knew the power of applied critical thinking. And he knew that even though his commander had said, don't move from this hilltop, that what his commander really meant was do not let the Confederates turn this line under any circumstance. And famously, as the Confederates started to rally their troops and begin up this hill for a third time, he ordered his men to disobey that order and to charge, to charge, fix their bayonets and charge down the hill. And when he did so, the Confederates weren't expecting that. And so he caught them unawares, he had, the, he had gravity at his back, and he disrupted the Confederate charge, broke the Confederate attack here, and probably saved the Union, maybe even saved the country, because a lot of historians say that if the Confederates had gotten past that hill there, there was nothing else between there and Washington, D.C. They could have kept going until they took the nation's capital. That's the power of applied critical thinking, but it's also the power of enabling your frontline leaders, whether that be your frontline military leaders or your store managers if you're in a retail business, your factory managers if you're in a manufacturing industry, whatever it is, enabling your frontline managers and decision makers to think for themselves. It's powerful, it's why we talk so much about it, and there's a lot you can learn from what happened here in 1863. Bryce, that was just such a fascinating video to watch. Love to see you out in the field in action, and, and the content and the description of what happened and the lessons taken away from there are absolutely fundamental to what, what, what we're teaching with red team thinking. And I really want to unpick more the devolved decision-making, this concept of the military call it mission command. Yep. Fascinating. Or off-tracks tactic is how the Germans originally called it. Yeah. 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 Great, great subject. So I, th I think today let's talk about that because it's, it's fascinating and it's such a great capability and an enabler 
for our clients out there today? It really is because, you know, you think about it, like I said in the video, there, there, it's not just for military situations. It's for every situation. You know, enabling, if you're in, the, in, 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 in a factory, enabling people, look, this is a key to Toyota success, famously, right? Is yeah. every factory worker can pull the stop cord on the assembly line. They yeah, can the make a decision, yeah. the end on cord. They can make a decision that there's a problem on the assembly line that's going to affect quality. Think about how empowering that is. We're not even talking about frontline managers here. In Toyota's case, they're devolving decision-making to the factory workers, to the workers themselves, to be able to pull that and on cord and say, wait, I see a problem here that's going to affect the quality of these vehicles. We need to address it. And they get paid. They get a bonus. I was going to say, there's no fear in doing that. Normally, right. you did that in an organization. People are like, not touching a cord. You know, yeah. I'm going to get hit for that. But as you said, they got rewarded. Right. Multiple times because you get financially rewarded. But the reward, I think, for Toyota, for the culture, was seeing the value of doing that. Seeing that prevention of a failure, you know, prevention of quality drop. Yep. And that's why, you know, we talked about this with Nigel, quality built into your process rather than an afterthought. Right. And that's such a powerful enabler, isn't it? It's a great success. You contrast that with something else we've talked about in our previous episode, which is this United Airlines debacle that happened a few years ago. And there was an organization where not only the, the frontline workers, but the frontline managers had no ability to make decisions for themselves. They had to go with the stated policies that were in the book. And they couldn't deviate from that, even when they could see with their with their own eyes that a passenger was being beaten by police in one of their planes and that everyone in the plane was holding their cell phone videos up filming it. Yeah, that wasn't going to end well, was it? And they couldn't stop it because they weren't empowered to. Yeah. And as we talked about on that episode, and we'll put we'll put a link to that. Sam can 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 put a link to that in the in the show notes. As we talked about in that episode. If that frontline manager, if that gate manager had simply been able to, to think for herself and, and been empowered to make a decision to say, right, I know that the book says that if we need to get uh, one of our crew members to, to their destination, we're supposed to bump a random passenger to say, right, it's, you know, the, the, the random passenger that the computer picked this time happens to be a doctor who needs to get back to his patients. Maybe we should not kick him off the plane. And you know, and or even farther down the decision making tree, right now that now he's refusing to give up his seat. Maybe it's not worth calling the police to drag him out of his seat just to make room for one of our crew members to sit in that seat that he paid for. And again, if you could simply make those rational decisions, they could have saved. They could have prevented the loss of of, of hundreds of millions of dollars in shareholder value. And we see this happen every day in retail stores. Enabling your retail store managers to make decisions for themselves. You know, back before Jeff Bezos bought Whole Foods and, and in my opinion, has, has, has pretty much run it into the ground um, in a lot of ways since, since taking it over. One of the secrets to Whole Foods success was that every store manager had a, a, a ability to buy and negotiate contracts, uh, buy and negotiate with local vendors to get local produce, local artisanal foods in the stores. And that was amazing because even though you were shopping at a national retail chain, you'd go into your local Whole Foods and find like, wow, they're, they're selling honey from a farmer four miles from here, you know, and stuff. How cool is that? I'm going to buy that. 
And then when Bezos came in and took it over, he, his whole thing was standardization. And he yeah. and he stopped all that. And it was one of the things that really hurt that the company was eliminating that. Again, one of the secrets to, to, to Costco's success in the United States that they still do is every store manager has a percentage of their purchasing budget that they are it's discretionary. So, you know, the temptation for a big box store is to order the exact same products. You sell the exact same products in Miami, Florida, as you sell in Rhode Island, as you sell in Alaska, as you sell in, in, in Texas. And Costco recognized early on that things, people don't want the same things in each region. No. And so, yes, you have, you get economies of scale and you, you have to order a, a, you know, to, to make that business model work, you've got to have a lot of standardization, but they gave, I don't know what the percentage is, but they, there's a percentage that each store manager has that's discretionary to say, you know what, you know, we don't need a lot of, we don't need a lot of, you know, of this product in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. What we really need that's not, that's unique to this part of the country is this, you know, and then order those Absolutely. things. Hugely important. Same concept. Of course, it's massively important. Numerous reasons why. One, you're engaging your people to take part in that. Two, it's innovative. You're being creative in looking at things differently and experimenting. And this goes back to what we spoke to with Oliver Yonchev a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, in their organization, they have 20% set aside of their productivity purely for experimentation and innovation. And everybody's invited to come and contribute and hey we'll, we'll try this thing next month and it's going to take 20% of our funding and that's okay because as you said in that 20% a greatness can evolve and things that you would never have thought of but also looking at the Costco concept one area one state city uses that and it works and they can then share that with others and go hey guys we did this if it's relevant to your area try it and then you get that ripple effect and I've seen that in many organizations where you allow one to almost do like a skunk works, you know, go and try these things on your own, small scale, safe to fail experiments, and then you scale it, you know, where it's required and where it's going to be most beneficial. But to do that, you have to trust your team, don't you? That's the number one thing in all this. I, and I want to come back to what you just said there, Marcus, because I, I don't, I don't have any specific examples I can think of right now. We should do a, we should do a show on on the on the whole Costco model because it's really mm, a great Costco is phenomenal. But but there has been examples where some of their best-selling products nationwide in the United States are products that some store manager used her his discretionary purchasing power to get some weird yeah. product that, that no one else had thought of, and it ends up selling really well in their store. And then the other stores in their region are like, oh, wow, okay, we'll get that in our store. And then they do well, and then it ends up being going nationwide. And it's That's just it. like – but also imagine – Imagine how much more fun it is to be a Costco store manager than yeah. to be a, a manager of another company where you have a similar big box store. You have no discretion at all about what's sold in the store. It actually makes it, it's a reason to get up in the morning and go to work. Because you're like, what, what cool thing could I find? It makes you want to go. I mean, yeah. We all know I've moved to Cyprus. There's no Costco here. I <laughs> loved Costco in the UK. It reminded me of my times in America. But every time we used to go, that first entrance, there was always new stuff. And then you'd know you go in and you find your standard aisle stuff. But it made it exciting to go there. You go in and you go, right, what's going to be there? And it'd be something different each time. And it's really cool stuff. It's innovative. It's things you want. They're not stupid. They know what you're going to buy. And you leave with a trolley full. Again, you know, we used to go to a $300 store. I went went to buy some sausages once and came out and spent $3,000. I was like... (laughs) Oh, that must have been a nice TV, Marcus. 
<laughs> you know me too well. But it, it, it's just great. It's clever marketing. It's great salesmanship. But it's just engaging for the client, for the customer, for the managers, for the customers going in there on a daily basis. I think it's fantastic. I'd love to do love to do an episode on that. Yeah, and, and and you know, and 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 look at the engagement. They have the they have the lowest turnover rate of any any major retailer in the United yeah. States. Lowest turnover yeah. rate. Membership retention, highest, lowest turnover rate of personnel, fixed level of income. We talk about this all the time. Your frontline leaders want to feel like they matter. Yeah. They want to feel like they that they're there not just to fill a space and to pass your orders on to their teams, but to think, to use their minds. Yeah. And and, and it's a, you know, it, there's a great quote from Eisenhower. And, and I'm going to, I don't remember the exact wording, but this is close. I'll paraphrase Ike where he said, don't tell your people how to do things. Tell them what needs to happen mm-hmm. and let them figure it out for themselves. And you will be amazed yeah. at what they come up let with. Let them dazzle you with their imagination. And that's Absolutely. distributed decision-making. Yeah. And that goes back to what I was talking about at Little Round Top. You know, it, it, you know, Chamberlain made the decision to do that for himself. But if his general had been more forward thinking, I mean, this was the, the mid 1800s. We hadn't really got to, 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 to off tracks tactic or mission yeah. command yet, quite yet. I think the Prussians started it in 1870, actually, in the, in the Franco-Prussian mm-hmm. War. But if he, if he had had a modern, you know, uh, progressive general, his general wouldn't have told him, you stay in this position on top of this hill, no matter what. He would have told him, don't let the Confederates turn the line. Do whatever you have to do to make sure that they don't turn the line. Yeah. What to do and why it needs to be done. Yeah. And, you know, because this concept of, of distributed decision-making didn't exist back in the, in the 1860s, Chamberlain had to come up with it for himself. And he had to sit there. And that's literally what he did is say, right, I know that I was told to stay right here and not to move. But if I stay right here, there's no way I can stop this last charge. And then there's nothing behind me. And and, and if they if they get through here, then they're just gonna yeah, they're they're just over. gonna the war is gonna be over. And so how do I how do I do what I was supposed to do, which is to not let that happen? And that's where he came up with the idea that you know what? There's one thing I can do, and that's to 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 disrupt my enemy's decision-making. They think they're going to come up this hill. They think I'm low on ammunition. They think that, that all they have to do is throw themselves one more time at this and they'll get through. Well, they're going to get a surprise because when they get about halfway up this hill this time, we're going to meet them coming down and we're going to have gravity on our side. Ready with the force. Yeah. And that goes back to commander's intent. Does it give the intent and call it leadership intent, call it management intent, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but give intent let people know what you intend to do and to happen, why they need to do that, given purpose and the emotion and the engagement to do it, and then let them get on with it. Right. Just sit back and let them get on with it. If they need a bit of a kick steer and a rudder, help. But don't tell people how to. It's so demotivating, especially when they probably know. I used to see this with engineers all the time. You know, the chief, or, right, here, here's what we need to do, and here's how I want it doing. And you could see the super smart young guy who just arrived and he'd be going, oh, God, what, what have I come into? And no one else says anything. And then they build the product and it doesn't work. Then the debrief, it all comes out. Oh, if only we'd done this. Well, why didn't you say so? Well, that's not what you asked. You told me how to build it. I did exactly as I was told. So we've got to move away from this. 
you know, conformity mindset to challenge, to think, to do the right thing, even if it's not what you were told to do, it's still achieving the mission, which is ultimately the intent that we're trying to get you know, conveyed. And think about this as a senior leader. If you're a senior leader, that's that should be your job. Is to, you have two jobs. I see it. You have you have your you is is setting the targets, setting the goals for your organization, mm-hmm. explaining why those goals matter, inspiring people to achieve those goals. That's job one. And then job number two is getting your team members the resources and the help and the support they yeah. need to achieve those Create goals. Create the environment, the resources within it. Sit back and watch. Right. You know, yeah. and, you know, I, I, we've talked about this a lot. You know, my mentor, Alan Mulally, this is how he ran every meeting. Was not, Joe, here's how I want you to do this. It was all, Joe, how are we doing on meeting that target that you've been assigned? You need help doing this? What, what resource... What do you need? What can we get you to help you do that? You need more help from engineering? Great. Head of engineering, can you help Joe with this so that he can do this? Great. Excellent. That's the job of the leader totally. is, is marshalling those resources. Yeah. It's not sitting there standing next to Joe and saying, Joe, here's how I want Just, you to do this. You know? How powerful is that? How, how much does that set a tone? So I walk in, I'm the big CEO. Right, everybody, here's what we need to achieve. Here's my intent. Here's why we need to do it. Now, how are we going to do that? And what is it you need from me? And straight away, everyone is like, wow, they want my opinion. They're going to provide me the support I need. They're going to listen to my requirements rather than here's what we need to do. Here's how you're going to go and do it all. Let me know when it's done. And you retire to the boardroom or the golf course. And then you, you the motivation follows you out of the room for the execution of that plan. And, and I think that that's where we're seeing the differentiator today in society, in the organizations are not just surviving. You need to thrive. In, you know, you've got to be adaptive and thrive today. To, just surviving doesn't cut it because you will ultimately perish. And those organizations that are cascading that ability down to their people, Costco style, are the ones that are thriving indeed. There's one other thing that I want to close with, folks, and that's this. You know, I mentioned in that video, Joshua Chamberlain was not a military man. Wasn't he, he? He was a he was a professor at a small liberal arts college. Hard to get farther away from a from a military officer than that. And if you think about it, if there had been a meeting before the Battle of, of Gettysburg, and and the generals and and you know were were sitting in a in a planning session with the colonels like like Chamberlain, I doubt anyone would have paid much attention to what Joshua Chamberlain had to say. Because all these generals had all gone to West Point. They'd all spent their careers in the U.S. military before the war started. And now here they were doing what they were trained their whole life to do. And so they probably would have discounted the opinions of a guy who, until the war broke out, was a college professor at a small liberal arts college teaching people Socrates. What does he know? What does he know? So here's the thing I want you to challenge you all to think about. Is there a Joshua Chamberlain in your organization that you don't even know is there because you're telling everyone what to do and how to do it? If you enable distributed decision-making in your organization, if you let your leaders think for themselves, you may find that you have a Joshua Chamberlain or a Jane Chamberlain in your organization, and they may amaze you just as much as Joshua Chamberlain amazed the entire Union General Staff, not to mention the Confederates (laughs) back in 1863. Thanks a lot, folks. 
Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.